0: God's holy word, beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, what are you striving for? What are you seeking? What are you pursuing? What is the goal of your life? There are two options. We either strive for the creator or we make some aspect of the creation into a God. It's the creator we worship and we seek after or it's the things that he made that we worship and serve and seek after. Now, Paul throughout this first letter to Timothy has kept saying the same thing in every chapter. He says, Timothy, you got to keep the faith. You got to keep the focus. You got to keep the main thing, the main thing. You got to hold on to the gospel that it's all about God and knowing God and being reconciled to God, and so you need to hold on to the gospel, that Christ died for me, and I live for Christ. And so in chapter one, Paul told Timothy, listen, don't get all caught up in all these debates and arguments about all kinds of stuff. Preach the gospel. And then in chapter two, he says, listen, that's gonna change the way it's gonna affect the way you worship. Worship is gonna be prayerful. Worship is going to be outward-focused and missional. It's going to seek not just our needs, but it's going to seek that every knee would bow and every tongue confess because every sinner needs to know the only name under heaven by which man can be saved. And so faithful, God-centered, Christ-centered worship also involves embracing the roles and the offices that God has created us for as men and women. So we saw that in chapter 2. Then In chapter 3, he he says, well, a a Christ-focused ministry in church means a Christ-like church leadership. And when you have a Christ-like church leadership, then the church does its job of of being the pillar and bulwark of the truth in this world full of lies. And then in chapter 4, He reminds Timothy to be faithful in the duties of his office and so to teach the others to do the same thing, to to be training himself in godliness, to be dedicated to the practice of his duties, which is reading the Word, preaching the Word, teaching the Word, because the Word is about Christ. Christ is the Word incarnate, and the Bible is the Word in which Christ is revealed to us. And then in chapter 5, he speaks about how a Christ-oriented and Christ-focused ministry and church involves mutual love and respect for one another, care for the most vulnerable, and very high standards for leadership. No toleration, zero toleration for sin and unfaithfulness. It has to be dealt with. And then we come to chapter 6. Now, when Paul wrote this letter, there were no chapter divisions nor verse divisions. The chapters, the Bible was divided into chapters about a thousand years later after he wrote this and into verses hundreds of years after that at the time of the Reformation. So what we have here is the first verses of chapter 6. Actually, in terms of the the flow of the the epistle fits with last chapter, chapter 5. Uh, In chapter 5, he spoke about honoring widows who are truly widows. And the the word honor, you remember, can mean to to support financially and also to give respect. Then he spoke about honoring the elders who rule well, and especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So there's honor again. And here in the beginning of chapter 6, we have honor again, that we must honor those for whom we work. We must honor those whom we Now, if you have your Bible open, you'll see a little two right after the word bondservants. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants, a little two. That's a footnote. You look at the bottom of the page, and you read either bondservants, or it can be translated slaves. The Greek word is doulos, and in the preface to the ESV, if you have time to read it today at home, in the preface, the beginning of of the ESV Bibles, there's a little explanation as to why they choose to translate the word doulos which can mean slave or can mean uh, bond servant, indentured servant, why they choose to translate it quite a few times as bond servants. Summarizing it, this is the way things were. In the ancient world, for instance, in Ephesus, where Timothy was, probably more than half of the population was under some kind of servitude. But being a servant or a slave could vary wildly. Christians, a little later on, would often be condemned to slavery in the mines, the salt mines or the other mines, and that was dehumanizing and and horrific uh, work where these people were treated terribly. But you could also have bond servants or or, or indentured servants who they had a a big loan they couldn't pay, and they would arrange to work for so many years to pay off their loan. So it was more like being an employee than anything else. You could have servants that... Served their masters, but also on the side had their own businesses and made their own money and sometimes made so much money that they ended up buying their own freedom. So it it was very, very varied the way in which servitude worked in the ancient world. But everybody in the congregation there in Ephesus and the surrounding churches was either in servitude or they were being served. They were either servants or masters. And so Paul brings to bear the gospel on the interactions that people have in their daily life of serving and being served. And what does the gospel say to that? Well, the gospel says this, where God has placed you, do your work to bring honor to him. In the ancient world, there were lots of, uh, there's lots of literature which speaks about how slaves are disrespectful, slaves or, or servants are, are, are rebellious and, and they make fun of their masters behind their back, and they're they're hard to, to handle. And Paul says: if you're a Christian, that's not what people should be saying about you. Doesn't matter who your master is, doesn't matter who you're serving, you ought to be a walking picture of the gospel. Life is not about you. Life is about God and your neighbor. And so if God's put you in a place where you are called to serve someone else, you serve them so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. In other words, it should not be so that, you know, the big business owners and and the big rich people, the master people, that they're talking to each other and say, you know what, every time one of my servants becomes a Christian, they become terrible and unmanageable and angry and rebellious and disrespectful. Paul says that's going to bring the name of God into shame. It's going to make the name of God reviled. It's going to make the teaching of the gospel reviled. It ought to be that people speak to each other and say, did you notice that those servants who are Christians, they become twice as productive, twice as respectful. They're just such wonderful people. They're amazing. What's going on? What's happened to them? I want to learn about the power behind this transformation. That's the way it should be uh, for those who are, converted by the gospel. And Paul, and Paul says, well, listen, if you, if you should be like that to a, an unbelieving master, how much more if you have a believing master? Just because you go to church with him on Sundays. And, and sometimes in the ancient world, the, 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 the church, the gospel, turned things totally upside down because the, the, your servant on Sunday, he might be your elder or your deacon to whom you owed respect of the office. And this was a radical radical change that the gospel brought. But Paul says, listen, just because you're the person you're serving as a believer, that doesn't mean to say you can slack off. You do your work even more faithfully because the person you're serving is a fellow child of God and and he is benefiting from your good service. He's a beloved uh, brother. Now, this happened uh, centuries, many centuries before Paul wrote these words. It happened before there was a New Testament. It happened before there was an Old Testament that Joseph was plucked from his life of privilege and comfort as a a son of a a rich patriarch. And he was enslaved and he was brought to Potiphar's house. Now, Now, the way Joseph responded to that situation is a picture of what the apostle is teaching us in the beginning of chapter six. What did Joseph do? His brothers had sold him. He had every uh, opportunity to be angry and bitter, to, to, crawl, to, to curl up in a fetal position and, and to say, I'm not going to do anything. I shouldn't be a slave. It's not fair. It's not right. I hate this. And to be rebellious and to organize the other slaves to, to, to lead a, a violent rebellion and a, an escape. What did Joseph do? He says, the Lord has put me in this situation. I'm going to be the best slave I can be, the best servant I can be. And he was. He was. And because he was faithful, he went up, 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 until finally he was in charge of the entire household. And he basically had almost as many freedoms as many employees would have today. And then he was unjustly accused. and He was thrown into prison. And what did he do in prison? He didn't curl up in a fetal position and whine and complain and get bitter and and get angry and, and say, it's not fair. Why did God do this to me? He says, if God's put me in prison, I'm going to be the best, most godly prisoner that I can be, and he was, and because he was, the governor of the prison noticed him and and gave him more and more privileges and and opportunities to be free from his cell and to go serve the others, and through that, he came to know the servants of the pharaoh, and through that, finally, he was freed and set into one of the highest places in the land. So that's a picture in Joseph's life of the kind of attitude that Christians have when we are called to serve others. Now, sometimes it happens with some frequency. We get a new job or we get a new manager, and it's unpleasant. We don't like it. They change things. The the relationship's not there. It's hard. We don't like the environment of our work. And it's so easy to give in to to disrespect and and anger and, and, and an ungodly response. So these principles, even though no one here is, is a, a, an indentured servant or a bond servant of the way the text speaks. These principles apply to today as well. How am I serving the person that God or the company that God put me uh, placed me to serve? Am I doing it in a way so that when people see my faithfulness, they say, wow, praise God. I want to know more about what drives you to be like this and to act like this and to work like this. So it's a high calling. So that wraps up the the honor uh, questions of of chapter 5 and going into chapter 6. And then we come to verse 3, or the end of verse 2, and Paul is going to wrap up the letter. Teach and urge these things. What are these things? Well, it's the the entire book, the entire letter that he's written. Teach and urge these things. What are these things? Well, look at verse 3. If anyone teaches a different thing, different doctrine, does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. So teach and urge these things. What are these things? It's doctrine. It's sound words. It's teaching. Now, we live in a time in which doctrine and teaching and, and confessions and patterns of sound words. That's, that's what a creed is. That's what a confession is. It's a pattern of sound words, as Paul describes it in the second letter to Timothy. We live in a time where people think that's kind of old-fashioned and kind of, kind of, of, it kind of cramps your style as a church. We live in a time which values freedom and which values uh, our feelings and how, how, how I'm feeling, my emotions, and we want the Church to address our felt needs and we want the, the worship to, to to whip up our emotions so that we feel happy about being a follower of Jesus that 's not what the Bible teaches the Bible says that the gospel is about doctrine it's sound words it's teaching that 's what Timothy is called to do, and that's what Timothy is called to instruct other preachers to focus on. That's the summary. It's the faith once for all delivered to the saints. It is a body of teaching that is received from God and passed on to the church and in the church from generation to generation. It is a tradition. there's another word which we don't like nowadays. We don't like the word doctrine. We don't like the word tradition. The word tradition simply means something which is passed over. It is given over from one generation to the next. You can have bad traditions. You can have good traditions. The gospel is a good tradition. And the gospel, the Bible, specifically tells us that it must be passed on from generation to generation. Why should Timothy teach and urge these things because this teaching, this doctrine, these sound words makes the difference between life and death. It makes the difference between being in Christ or out of Christ. It makes the difference for eternity, but already here in this life, it changes things radically because right thinking leads to right living. That's why the scripture often speaks about the mind. And it works both ways. When the mind is renewed, the renewing of our minds leads to renewed lives. But the darkening of our minds, think of Romans chapter one, leads to a life of more and more sin and lostness. And you can see that in the following verses. Because Paul describes what happens when we don't stick to the teaching. When we don't teach and urge the words, the sound words of the gospel, what happens? Well, people start getting puffed up. They get an unhealthy craving for controversies and quarrels about words. And what does that produce? Well, it produces the the works of the flesh. Look at the end of verse four. Envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions. And look at verse five, constant friction. There's always arguing. There's always division. There's always friction. If there's always envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction in the church, you know what's happening? The gospel isn't being preached. The gospel isn't being heard. The gospel isn't being sought after and longed for. We've totally strayed from our mission. And then Paul after making clear the consequences of not keeping the main thing the main thing, you know, if you focus on Christ, you, you build one another up in love. But if you focus on, on not Christ, you get simply hate and brokenness and dysfunctional body. But then he says something very, very surprising in verse 5. At the end, he says that these people imagine that godliness is a means of gain. What does it mean? Godliness is a means of gain. Well, already in the first century, even though the church was not yet at the state that it would be after the Edict of Milan and in the in the fourth century, when when Christianity became the official uh, religion of the Roman Empire, we're in the first century. There are going to be there are already a few persecutions happening here and there. It's going to get worse, but yet uh, already something is happening which keeps happening throughout the history of the church. It has always been a danger to the church that it attracts charitans and people that seek their own glory. The church is a gathering of many people. They have open hearts and open hands, and together they have considerable resources. Even if They're all servants. If you get a whole pile of servants together, they still have considerable resources together. And of course, in the church at Ephesus, you also had uh, many rich people as well. So the church, there's a lot of resources gathered together. There's a deep respect and honor for leaders. There's a desire to serve others. And that's something which an ungodly person can easily take and twist and use to their own ends people that seek gold and glory, people that want to be important and rich. They see an opportunity in that. Think of Simon the magician, Acts chapter 8 in Samaria. He sees that the apostles lay their hands on people, and those people receive the special gifts of the Holy Spirit. Now, Simon had been the great panjandrum there in Samaria. He'd been the great impressive person that everybody said he is great, and he's from God, and he's powerful. And, he, and now suddenly somebody was eclipsing him. And so he offered money to the apostles. He sees the gospel as a way to get status and wealth. There's a story written from about the first century, a man, a charlatan that that joined one of the local churches, and he started getting all carried away with with being important and, and teaching his particular interpretations of the scriptures, which were not actually orthodox, They were heretical. Uh, He started getting on the radar of the local government. He was put in jail because he was not a a good citizen. He wasn't put in jail for for being a Christian. This was heard around the, the, um, the area, and churches, even from far away, sent large gifts because they were under the impression that he was suffering for the sake of the gospel. And so through all of this wickedness and unfaithfulness, he became very, very wealthy. And so this this is the kind of stuff that has happened throughout the history of the church. When I was working in South America, one of the members of the church was approached by a non-believing friend, and the unbeliever said, Hey, João, why don't we start a church together? I will put up the money for the building, and I'll I'll, I'll bankroll it. You do the teaching, because you're one of these Christian guys, and we'll split the profits. Because he saw that a lot of churches in Brazil are exactly that, they're business propositions. You think of the TV preachers. They take the word, they twist the word, they, they rework the word, they have all kinds of smoke and mirrors and clever brews of scripture text with all kinds of red herrings to distract and confuse their listeners, and all they really want is the money. They keep asking for more and more money to pay for their fancy mansions and their fancy jets, and that's a thing that we still see today. And the people that are paying these guys are willing victims. These men are saying, listen, if you follow Jesus, you'll get rich and wealthy and important like I am. And the people say, hey, I want that. The minister said, the pastor said, give $1,000 to God, and God will give you $10,000 back. And they're like, okay, let's see if it works. And so those who are being victimized are often willing victims. They have that desire to get rich. The gospel is used as a means of gain. Well, then Paul says, well, that's not the way it works. Look at verse 6. Godliness with contentment is great gain. And you remember, perhaps, that we had a sermon, I think it was on Philippians, which spoke about being content in all circumstances and the enoughness, the idea of enoughness. This is the same word here. Godliness with enoughness is great gain. The Christian says, I am on a mission in this world. And as long as God gives me my basic needs to complete that mission, what is the mission? It is to glorify God, to love God, to love my neighbor. If I've got what I need for that, then I'm content, that's enough. I'm not here to accumulate things. I'm here to serve God and serve my neighbor. And Paul says, listen, just look at the way life works. It stares you in the face that this is true. Look at verse 7. We brought nothing into the world. We cannot take anything out of the world. You are born naked. You are born with nothing, literally nothing. You have no, uh, no property, nothing that belongs to you when you're born. And when you die, it's the same thing. doesn't matter how many toys you have collected. When you die, you have nothing. He who dies with the most toys doesn't win. It simply doesn't make any sense. And so the Christian has a different attitude. Look at verse 8. If we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. I just need what I need to serve God and to serve my neighbor. And sometimes having less makes it easier to be the Christian that God calls us to be. So in verse 9, in verse 10, Paul addresses those who don't understand the gospel of enoughness, those who do not understand what their mission is in this world, those who get their eyes distracted, their view distracted from the Creator and start worshiping things. They start wanting to accumulate things because those things will make me happy. That's what life is all about. More things, more toys, more comforts, more pleasures. And Paul says, if that's the way you are, if you desire to be rich, you're falling into temptation. It is a snare, it's a trap of the devil. And a snare is something which captures you and then you're caught. You're in the power of the devil. It brings you ruin, says the apostle in verse nine, and it brings you destruction. When you start longing for and striving after the accumulation of things, through that craving, you will begin to wander from the faith. Look at verse 10. And when you wander from the faith, you pierce yourself with many pangs. Now, the word pierce is striking here because either your sins pierced Christ or they pierce you. Either your sins killed Jesus. All your sins will kill you. And so as Paul warns us against, not against riches, not against money, but against the desire to be rich and the love of money, that's the thing. You know, in, in my experience as a pastor, I've met more poor people that have sinned against this than rich people. Poor people often Imagine that if only they had some more money, they would be happy. And rich people often have come to the conclusion, if they're Christians, really having more is not going to make me happy. They've figured that out because they have a lot. But poor people are often most in danger, most vulnerable to this sin, to desire to be rich, to long for money, to love money because they think it will make my life Better, and Paul says it's not true. And behind this, of course, is what happened in the the garden. There was the serpent, and he was holding out unimaginable riches and power and glory and pleasure and personal autonomy. And we fell for it. We desired to be rich in the way that the devil describes wealth. We loved the money and the power and the glory for ourselves. We love to, the idea of using the created things for us, that we control them for our pleasure. And we know the results of that. It casts us into ruin and destruction. So what does Paul say, verse 11? But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Run as far away from these things as you can go. You walk into the mall, somebody says, hey, you want a free lottery ticket? What do you say to them? But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Your response should be a Christian response. Now, there are a whole bunch of different responses. One legitimate one would be to say to the person, I I don't need that money. It's a great conversation starter. I have no need of it whatsoever. But it's $10 million. I, I don't need it. I have no need for that money. That's a great way to start talking about the gospel. So flee those things, says the apostle, and pursue the other things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Don't pursue the works of the flesh. Pursue the fruit of the Spirit. And then he comes in verse 12 to to remind us of what he said in chapter 1. Fight the good fight of the faith. Now, in chapter 1, he used words which have to do with strategy and soldiers and battles. Here he's using slightly different words. He's talking about the fight or the struggle of an athlete. It's the word, the verb is connected to our word for agony in English. And it's the idea of of striving and fighting to to win the prize, to to win a contest against another athlete, to win the race or to win the the wrestling match. So, So strive, don't get distracted from the goal. If you're running a marathon, you focus and you breathe and you, and you run and you run and you run. And if, you, if the marathon wends its way through a little village and you see the bakery and you see these delicious looking pastries in the window, you don't want to get distracted by that. You don't want to stop and say, wow, that looks really good and go inside and buy two dozen and start eating them because by the time you're finished, the race is over and you've lost. You got to keep your mind focused on the prize. What is the prize? Well, look at it, verse 12. Take hold of eternal life. It's not some ribbon. It's not some diploma. It is eternal life that is before us. Run and don't stop running and keep your eyes fixed on that prize and, and reach out for it and, and grasp it and hold to it. That's what it's all about. Life, and what is life? What is eternal life? Life is to know God and to be in his presence and to enjoy him forever. That is life. Nothing is more valuable than that. And and Paul says, listen, Timothy, you've made this confession. By your words, you have said it. By your life, you have testified. Your good confession, that there is nothing more important than knowing God and loving God and serving God and being with God. And so, Timothy, I'm going to give you a solemn charge. Look at verse 13. And Paul uses very, very powerful, solemn language here because this is the most important thing in the universe. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things. God, the life giver. Money doesn't give life. Fame doesn't give life. Success doesn't give life. Your business and investment doesn't give life any kind of pleasure that you can imagine does not give life, but God gives life. And in the presence of God, the life giver, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confessions as Paul. What does he mean by that? Well, Jesus didn't confess that he believed the truths that we recite every Sunday in the Apostles' Creed. Jesus made the confession that we recite. He made the confession that we believe. He stood there before Pontius Pilate as the only begotten Son of God who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, and who who was suffering under Pontius Pilate and who shortly would would be crucified and would be dead and buried and would rise on the third day. He was making the very confession that we recite every Sunday. He is the gospel, and so it is him in whom we put our trust and our belief. So in the presence of God, the life giver, and Christ, the salvation worker, keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Keep the commandment. What's the commandment? The commandment is the gospel. The commandment is simple. Love God, love your neighbor. That's life. Hate sin, love Christ. That's the gospel. You keep that. Hold on to the gospel because the day is coming when the faith that you're holding on to will give way to sight. When all of the promises of that gospel will be consummated in the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Everything is going forward to that day. Brothers and sisters, that ought to be in our minds every day. That's why we get up in the morning because Jesus is coming to renew the heavens and the earth so we can live in glory and holiness forever and ever with him and, and all the angels. That's why we exist, to worship him forever in perfection. That's where we're going. Every day, we're one day closer. Every Sunday, we're one week closer. That's what it's all about. So keep the commandment because we're going somewhere. Jesus will appear. And what's going to happen when he appears? Then we will know life in all of its fullness because life is to know the Father. And we will see his glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Our faith will give way to sight. We will see him, the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. We will see him in the face of Jesus Christ. We will see his glory and to him will be all honor and eternal dominion. You know, when it comes to our eternal destination, Everyone gets what they want. Everyone gets what they're looking for. In hell, there will be no unbeliever who says, God, I didn't want to be here. I wanted to love you. I wanted to be with you. I wanted to to serve you and to be in your presence and to enjoy you forever. But you've put me here in hell, and I really didn't want to be here. It's not going to happen. Hell is for all those who say, I do not want God. I choose death and my autonomy, my perceived autonomy, rather than life in service to the King of Kings. Everyone gets what they're looking for. Everyone will find what they're looking for. It will come to them. And what does the believer want? What is the believer looking for? Well, remember the psalmist in Psalm 73, he figured it out, took him a bit, but he figured it out in the end. He says, whom have I in heaven but you? Now this guy almost, almost stumbled. He almost thought, you know what? The world and life in the world, that looks like a good life and I'm missing out. But then God Brought into an understanding of how things really are. And, and he comes to this conclusion Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That's what the believer wants. That's what the believer longs for to look upon the face of of our Lord Jesus Christ, to see the glory of God in the face of Christ. And so that's the contrast between belief and unbelief. The believer seeks God, the unbeliever seeks created things, and the desire to get more and more accumulated created things, which you think serve you, but you end up serving them as little gods, that will destroy you. And so Paul has just made it very, very clear that desiring riches and and craving and loving money is destructive and ruinous. But now as a pastor, he stops and he thinks to himself, well, I've just spoken very, very badly about loving money and and desiring money, desiring to be rich. What about the people in the church that are rich? How are they going to feel? What what are they going to think about this? Are they going to feel guilty? So Paul addresses the rich now in the final verses of this chapter. And he says, listen, I've got some words for the rich in the church in light of what I've just said. Now, as we're listening this morning, we may be thinking, well, I'm not rich, so I can just kind of relax now and let the rich people get what they need to hear from God. But brothers and sisters, I think I've said this before in sermons, in terms of the the global distribution of of wealth and, and privilege, we, all of us, are incredibly rich. We don't realize how rich we are. We're certainly in the top 20% of the global wealth. Probably most of us, almost all of us in the top 10%. If you take into account not just money, but also, for instance, the law and order and the services that we have available to us in this beautiful area of the country and the world in which we live, the freedom of religion and other freedoms that we have, if you take everything together, the life that we live, all of us, is most likely in the top half percent of the world's population. We are rich beyond our wildest imagination, and we just think it's normal, just like a fish is swimming in the ocean, doesn't realize how blessed it is compared to the fish that's flopping around in a small puddle in the Sahara Desert. We just think it's normal, but it's not. We are incredibly rich. And so God's speaking to all of us here in verse 17 and on. We are the rich in this present age. What does God charge us to be or not to be? Not to be haughty. Not to, th- not to have a sense of everything is owed to me. We're not the kind of person that demands to speak to the manager because things haven't been the way that we want them to be. That's not what a Christian does. At least not with that attitude. We ought not to be haughty or entitled We also ought not to set our hopes on the uncertainty of riches. What does God require from us? He requires humility and thankfulness. He requires that we trust God. We don't trust things. He requires that we worship the giver. We don't worship the gifts. Now, look at how often Paul mentions the word rich or variations of it. He's playing with this word in these verses if you look at verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. And I don't know what he does, but on God who richly, see how he's using the word in a different way, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good to be rich in good works. That's rich in a different meaning there to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure, riches, for themselves as a good foundation for the future. So Scripture uses, for instance, the Lord Jesus spoke the uh, the parable of the unfaithful steward. He was going to lose his job. He was his, He was in control of a lot of resources. They weren't his, but he had control over them. And he said, I'm going to use these resources so that I have a... a something to go to when I lose my job. And so he starts making deals with people, building relationships, so that when he loses his job, he's welcome to visit these people in their houses, and he has a place to be received, to to be taken care of. And the Lord Jesus says that often the world understands better than the sons of light as to how to use the things of this world to build relationships and and to to get some advantage, some long-term advantage from it. That's what the Scripture commands us to do right here as well in verse 19. All the resources we have are not for our own pleasure. They're to help us to love God and love our neighbor. That's what they're for. So we ought to be rich in good works, generous and ready to share. And when we do that, we build relationships, a foundation for the future. We're thinking of the life which is truly life. So when we take resources and we ship them off through the deacons to far off Africa, to some orphanage or some home which takes care of widows, and takes care of their bodily needs and also speaks the gospel to them. We are using resources that God has given us, but we're building relationships for eternity. And I've mentioned it in prayer a number of times that we look forward to the day when people whom we have served with the gifts we give We will meet them before the throne of the Lamb. And we will most likely be able to find out and converse about how much of a blessing it was that we were able to serve them this way in Christ. That's the way the Christian treats the things of this world. It's not for me. It's for God's glory and for my neighbor's benefit. And of course, the neighbor begins at home. It's for the benefit of wife and children to serve and to take care of them in the first place. Now, Paul says, when we do this, then we take hold of that which is truly life. The devil says life is getting what you want. Life is seeking to look out for number one. That's you. And the gospel says, that's not true. That's not life. That's like walking through the desert and seeing a mirage of an oasis, and you run and you dive into it, thinking you're going to dive into some refreshing water, and you come up with a mouthful of sand. That's the way of the world. It is not life. It's fake. All it brings is death and destruction. What is life? It is to know God, to love God, and to love the neighbor. And that reflects in the way we use our earthly uh, possessions. And so Paul ends the the chapter, and he ends the epistle by reminding Timothy again in verse 20, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Now, this is not a deposit of money. He's not a bank. What has been deposited with Timothy is the faith. It is the pattern of sound teaching. It is the doctrine. It is the faith once for all delivered to the saints. So Paul is saying, Timothy, through the whole letter, I've been reminding you. Then you got to hold on to the main thing. There's a right way to think. There's a right way to believe. There's a right way to live. And that leads to true life right here on this earth and also forever. It leads to God. And if you get that wrong, then everything goes wrong. Now and forever. And so people have gotten it wrong. People have turned aside from the faith. They've been interested in irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. The word knowledge in Greek is gnosis, and it's behind the word that we have in English, gnostic. And in the first century already, we have the beginnings of what will flourish in the second and third centuries, the, the heresy of gnosticism, that, that you've got to get into these little groups, and you've got to learn these esoteric truths in the, the deeper and the higher in you know more and more deeper truths. and and the and the apostle says that's foolish babbling. These are contradictions. It's irreverent. It's not life. Hold on to the faith. It's an objective body of truth which we must receive, which we must hold on to, we must believe, we must live according to it, we must teach others. And that body of truth is the revelation of scripture about Christ, who he is, what he has done. And that is the greatest treasure in the whole world. And that's what the church is here to pass on. It has been passed on, this, this deposit, this, this faith has been passed on from Paul to Timothy. And if you, if you look at the next page in your Bible, 2 Timothy 2 verse 2, Paul specifically instructs Timothy that it has to keep going. 2 Timothy 2 2, Uh, He says, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trusted faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So from generation to generation, that's been happening all the way down to our days. That glorious deposit, that pattern of sound words has been passed on. Generations of preachers have preached it and taught it to new preachers. Generations of believers have heard it and taught it to their children and spread it in their communities. And what is this deposit? What is this faith? What does it say? It says, love God. God is life. Pursue righteousness. Keep the commandment. Take hold of that which is truly life. Fight the good fight. Keep the faith. This whole process is going to come to an end one day. This whole process will end when the Lord Jesus makes his appearing, when our faith becomes sight. So brothers and sisters, we look to Jesus. He's the author of our faith. He's the finisher of our faith. He for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, he despised the shame, and now he's in glory. And he's coming again to judge the living and the dead and to bring us into glory. So forgetting the things that are behind and forgetting all the distractions of the things of this world, Let us press on. Let us keep the main thing the main thing until finally we come to that day when we see him in person, the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen.